Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to Genesis 50. Genesis chapter 50. We will finish our study of the book of Genesis this morning. Of course, you see the title of the message, The End of the Beginnings, and we'll work through Genesis 50 today. So Genesis 50 is the conclusion of the Genesis story and of the Genesis world. It's interesting when you think about the amount of years that Genesis covers from chapter 1 to 50. 4,000 years of human history have transpired since Genesis 1 and to the conclusion of Joseph's death in 1805 B.C. So approximately or roughly 4,000 years have gone by. And Moses has selected key events and key people and presented to us over 50 chapters a biblical history of the beginning of the world and a biblical history of the story of redemption. Moses is written in such a way to shape and frame our thinking about life, where it started. He's endeavored to shape our thinking about salvation, that salvation is never of man, but only of God. And he shapes life and salvation from God's perspective so that we see reality for what it truly is. This is God's world. This is God's creation. This is God's plan of redemption. And by his grace, those of us who have professed Christ here this morning, we are part of that grand and glorious plan. The perspective that Moses lays out in Genesis is that God created the world, humanity, the crown jewel of God's creation, then fell into sin, according to Genesis 3, taking the entire world, including us, into sin, Romans 5. But God immediately responded by sacrificing an animal, killing an animal in Genesis 3, and then using the skins of that animal to clothe or cover Adam and Eve and their nakedness. And after that, he promised that a seed would come, a man, a human being, would come into this world to bring redemption, to bring salvation, and to establish a kingdom. And over those 10 Toledot sections, we've tried to emphasize those 10 Toledot sections. Over those sections, we've seen God continuously progress his plan of redemption, his plan of salvation through people, through families. I mean, that's who God has used to ultimately bring us Jesus Christ and bring us to salvation. Those Toledot sections began in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and then they broadened to talk about the nations, and then beginning in chapter 12, all the way back in our study, you'll remember with the Abrahamic covenant, the Toledots began to focus on specific families, one family, Abraham and his descendants, and then we have found out from chapter 49 that the seed will come through Judah, through the family and line of Judah. Now, as we bring Genesis to a close today, there are really two major compelling events that have just transpired 
Uh, the first event is that Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers. Of course, you remember the drama of that story, and we won't spend time reviewing it, but that is a major event that brings us to the close of Genesis. Uh, the second major or compelling event is that over two chapters, Jacob, or better known at this point as Israel, has blessed his sons. So when you get to chapter 50, chapter 50 strategically wraps up everything. This is putting the final bow on the storyline that began in chapter 1, verse 1. Let me summarize chapter 50 for you. In this chapter, Moses gives us three final scenes that will conclude the Genesis narrative. Three final scenes. And these scenes are meant to give confidence to the reader, so confidence to us that the 315 seed and the Abrahamic covenant are still on track. So when we close our Bibles this morning and we finished our study of Genesis, what's supposed to be in our mind is that although the Genesis world is coming to an end, God's promise of sending a redeemer, God's promise within the Abrahamic covenant it continues beyond the pages of Genesis, and we'll see that today. So let's begin our time by looking at this first scene that we find in Genesis chapter 50, and that would be the death and burial of Israel. The death and burial of Israel. And so as we look at the next 14 verses... I think it's best to divide up this scene into, into three parts. And that's how we'll look at Israel's death and burial. And that first part is the embalming of Israel. The embalming of Israel. So you take your copy of God's Word and you follow along as I read our first three verses of this chapter. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. So after Jacob had blessed each of his sons, and after he had given his own burial specifications to his sons, he breathed his last. And you remember those details from the end of chapter 49, specifically verses 29 through 33. So Jacob has breathed his last. He has died. So when 50 begins, Joseph's emotions pour out as he falls on Jacob's face or Israel's face and he begins to weep and to kiss him. Notice there in verse 1 the rapid succession of those verbs. Uh, those are put there quickly to demonstrate the intensity of the emotion that Joseph exhibited. By the way, this language should be familiar to us at this point in Genesis because these are the same words used in chapter 33 referring to Esau's actions 
when him and Jacob reunited with one another. Remember, they both essentially fell on each other's necks as they were overwhelmed with emotion. If you remember back to chapter 45, when Joseph and Benjamin finally reunite after all those years, the text describes the same type of actions, falling on their necks or falling on their faces. And look back at Genesis chapter 46. This is interesting here. The fact that Joseph attended to Jacob's death is also fulfillment of God's words to Jacob in chapter 46, verse 4. Look at verse 4. It specifically tells us that Joseph will be there to close Jacob's eyes. So not only do we have a room full of emotion that's described in those successive verbs, but even here in 50, we have a fulfillment of God's word saying that Joseph would be there at Israel's deathbed. So go back to 50 and notice after Joseph gathers himself, after he calms down from the emotions that he pours out, he commands his physicians, or literally healers, he commands the Egyptian healers to embalm Israel. Now Israel's embalming, and then you can look at the end of chapter 50, and Joseph's embalming are the only two embalmings that we find in Scripture. So this is very unique. Very unique. And it makes sense that these would be the only two men or the only two people in Scripture that would be embalmed because of their close association with the Egyptians. So as best as history can tell us, the Egyptians invented embalming. And there were three specific methods that they would use to embalm the dead. Now the cheapest way would be to have the intestines cleaned out and then the body would just be placed in natron, a mixture of elements. The second way would be by taking cedar oil and injecting it in the anus, which would dissolve the intestines and the stomach and then the body would be placed in natron. And then the third and final way, the brain and all of the internal organs would be removed from the body, except for the heart, the abdominal cavity would be filled with various spices, and then the body would be placed in natron. Again, a mixture of certain elements to uh, preserve the body. Now, after all of these methods were done, the body would be soaked for 70 days. Then the body would be taken out of those elements. The body would then be washed, and then it would be wrapped from head to foot with various bandages and cloths. And then, interestingly, the body would be smeared or coated with gum, a particular plant that produced waxy-type material. So after the body was placed in bandages, after the body was coated and wiped and smeared with gum, the corpse would be placed in a wooden coffin, and then typically that coffin would be placed in a room upright uh, against the wall. Now embalming, of course, 
wasn't customary for the Hebrews. As we've already seen in Genesis, when the patriarchs died or others died in Genesis, normally the bodies were placed in caves. But because of Joseph's strong connection with Egypt, of course, he had been there for a few decades and he had risen to power. So because of his connection with Egypt, it extended to give national honor and prestige to Israel. Now notice verses 3 and 4 mention a 40-day and a 70-day time period for these things to happen. So uh, this would have given time for the embalmment. This would have given time for mourning. Uh, This would have given time for various ceremonies. And it would have essentially captured both uh, the Egyptian culture and also uh, Jewish culture as it relates to uh, burials, and embalming. So that is the embalming of Israel. Let's look at the second part of this theme, the request of Joseph. The request of Joseph. Verse 4. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So although Israel had been embalmed, the plan was never for him to remain in Egypt. The plan was never for him to remain outside of the promised land. Back in chapter 49, Jacob had told his sons specifically where he wanted to be buried. So although the embalming had taken place and the time of mourning for at least 70 days resided in Egypt, Israel had already labored with his sons saying that he did not want to remain there but ultimately find his way back to the promised land. So Joseph, his son, is laboring to honor uh, this particular request. So Joseph speaks to the household of Pharaoh requesting for Israel's body to be transported from Egypt to Canaan. Now, it's interesting here, if uh, you were reading along in the text, that Joseph, he isn't the one that actually directly interacts with Pharaoh. He spoke to the household of Pharaoh. So we don't know exactly why he didn't go face to face with Pharaoh, but most commentators suggest that he just spoke to the household because he had just been around Israel's dead body. And because he had been around Israel's dead body, out of respect for Pharaoh, he uses some messengers or some go-betweens to do the communicating. So regardless, Joseph has put in a request based on Israel's final request. And he does so in a way to emphasize and stress his familial relationship 
to Israel. Notice verse 5. Look at this. This is interesting. In verse 5, Joseph refers to Israel two times by my father. So he labors the familial realm, trying to emphasize to Pharaoh's household and ultimately to Pharaoh that he wants to fulfill Israel's request based on the fact that they are family. I love seeing that from Joseph, by the way. He's a family man, and he's looking to fulfill the request of his father. And because Joseph is in right standing with this Pharaoh, look at verse 6. Pharaoh wholeheartedly agrees. So Joseph's request is met, and that brings us to the third part of this first scene, the burial of Israel. So Israel has been embalmed. Joseph now essentially has the body. So now they're going to move from Egypt to the promised land. Verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, and his brothers, and his father's household. They left only their little ones, and their flocks, and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan." Verse 12, thus his sons did for him as he had charged them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So as you can see from this text and the description of this funeral procession, this was no small matter. Uh, This is a massive funeral procession. Notice verse 7. All of the servants of Pharaoh, all the elders of his house, all the elders of the land, So you've got a massive group of Egyptian dignitaries that are showing unbelievable respect for this man. It's because they had respect for Joseph. I mean, this just attests to the fact that how highly prized Joseph was in the Egyptian culture at that time. So much so that Basically, all of Egypt came along for this funeral procession. All the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land. 
And notice verse eight, all the house of Joseph, all his brothers. That tells us here they left behind those who were unable to travel because this would have been a difficult journey. Look at verse nine. Egyptian chariots and horsemen were along for the procession. So not only did you have the Egyptian leaders, not only do you have basically the nation of Israel in a small form with uh, the family of Israel, but then you've even got a military force. Uh, You've got a military guard. Uh, You have all of Egypt, all of the nation of Israel packed together for this giant funeral procession. And notice again, the chariots and the horsemen were there to guard the entire procession. So there wasn't anybody getting through that didn't need to be there. This is protection and prestige and honor given to Joseph, but more importantly here to Israel and his death. In 1892, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon passed away. And over the coming days after his death, some 60,000 people came to see his body as he was lying in the casket there in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. 60,000 people came to see him over, I think, just two or three days. Before his funeral procession, where he left the church and was taken to the seminary, over 100,000 people uh, lined the streets. Some two miles of people as his hearse was transported from Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, to the cemetery. Now, people giving honor to the great Charles Spurgeon. You can think of those numbers on an even more massive scale for Israel as he is being taken across the ancient world from Egypt to be buried in the promised land. Notice here we're told again in the text that the procession continued to Atad where they stopped and lamented and mourned for another seven days. Uh, This seems to be the biblical pattern that you find for God's people, a, a mourning of seven days. You can even read in the book of Job when his three really wise friends show up they actually mourn for seven days over the events that had transpired in chapter one of Job. You can find that in Job 2.13. And this funeral procession was so massive that according to verse 11, even the Canaanites were blown away by all this. I mean, they see this procession coming. Of course, they didn't dare at that point to try and intervene, but they are absolutely blown away about the festivities that they are witnessing. And according to verse 12, uh, the sons carried out the plan accordingly based on Israel's charge in chapter 49, and they buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site. So back in Genesis 23, Abraham bought a cave specifically to be used as a burial site. According to chapter 23, verse 19, 
His wife Sarah was buried there. According to chapter 25, verse 9, Abraham himself was buried there. Then, of course, here in chapters 49 and 50, Jacob is placed there. So Jacob has been embalmed. The funeral procession has ensued. He, Israel, has been buried in a cave that was strategically bought and planned from a human perspective, but even by God's perspective. And then verse 14, after the burial, Joseph and his brothers, they return to Egypt. So that is the death and burial of Israel. Well, there's a second scene we'll find in this chapter, and it is the theology and practice of Joseph. The theology and practice of Joseph. Pick up with me in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So in this scene, in the theology and practice of Joseph... We could break this down into two points, and we'll do so. Uh, the first point would be Joseph's theology. Joseph's theology. Now, it's interesting to see that the first thing that comes to the minds of Joseph's brothers after Israel's death was the idea that Joseph now had the freedom to punish them for their wrongdoings. It's almost like this story just can't end, right? I mean, I thought we kind of wrap this thing up back in uh, 46 and 47. But the brothers, for some reason, whatever it may be, are still unsure of their standing with Joseph. So Israel is dead. So now the brothers think, whoa, this is Joseph's opportunity. He could really get back at us at this point because of what we did to him several decades earlier. You see the word grudge. They thought he might bear a grudge. In other words, they thought he would be hostile towards them. He would be at enmity with them. I'm sure that they thought, you know, that it would be more than just banishing them from Egypt. They probably assumed that Joseph may have them killed. We don't know. Of course, that wasn't in Joseph's heart. He had long forgiven them. 
But the brothers were unsure. So verse 16, they send messengers to Joseph. <laughs> you know, they don't go directly to him. They, again, send messengers to him pleading on behalf of Israel. You know, so they're not even pleading on their behalf. Of course, they are changed men. We've seen that. Judah leading the charge. These brothers are not the same as they were in chapter 37. But they send messengers to Joseph and they plead on behalf of Israel. Well, notice Joseph's response in verse 17. He had already long forgiven them. Verse 17 says that Joseph began to weep. Joseph began to weep. Well, the brothers, after they send messages to him, they now come to him face to face. And look at verse 18. It says they fell down or they bowed down as an act of respect. Again, this is playing on Joseph's dream in chapter 37. Remember his dream clearly stated, and we've seen this a few times already, but it's playing on it again, that in Joseph's dream in 37, that the brothers would do what? Yeah, they would bow down before him. Now again, that's already happened in the narrative, but it's happening here again. That is to take us back to the dream. But it's also to show here that there is full reconciliation amongst the brothers. They are bowing down before him. They are prostrating themselves before Joseph, not in an act of worship, but in an act of humility. They also say, we are your servants. So they are showing that they will serve him. This is very much like the interaction between Jacob and Esau in chapter 32 and 33, when they reunite and Jacob says to Esau, look, I'll, I'll, I'll be your servant. I'll be your servant. But rather than defending his own character, I mean, Joseph could have defended his own character and the fact that he did display forgiveness towards them. He, he could have banked on that. But instead of focusing on his own human earthly character, which he could have done and that would have been fine, notice verse 19, he says, do not be afraid, referring to his brothers, for am I in God's place? Oh, what a position for Joseph to place himself in. Someone who was second in command over all of Egypt could have easily done something with the brothers. But rather than doing that, of course, demonstrating his heart change towards them, he says, am I in the place of God? Uh, Joseph is essentially saying, God has been in complete control of this entire story. In other words, what has happened has happened. And Joseph is saying, although I am in second command in Egypt, I am not in command of the world, of history. I am not sovereign. I am not able to providentially orchestrate what has happened. He's, he's telling us, and Joseph is telling the brothers, God has his purposes, God has his ways, and that God brings those about according to what he deems right in his own mind. This is profound and a wonderful theological insight that Joseph is giving us here, and it's with that insight that we get, really, I think, 
one of the more famous verses in Genesis. Look at verse 20. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Old Testament scholar uh, Richard Belcher, he says this, this is not only a summary of the Joseph story, he's referring to Genesis 50, 20, this is not only a summary of the Joseph story, but it is also a summary of the theology of the Bible. The sinfulness of human beings cannot hinder the good purposes of God. Now, of course, that statement is true of the Joseph narrative. I mean, he was rejected by his family. He was left dead by his family. He was sold into slavery. He was thrown into a pit. At every evil point in every act of wickedness, and we would admit that those things were wicked because they are. But at every one of those points, God was able and was providentially orchestrating that it would be used for good. Now, of course, that's true of the Joseph narrative, but is that not true of the entire Genesis narrative? I mean, if we were just to sort of pause hit the pause button on the sermon teaching here and just sit around at our tables, we could all come up with at least a dozen of scenarios and situations in Genesis where we're like, man, what are these people doing? (laughs) The fact of the matter is, God does not approve of any of that wickedness or those sins, but in his great mind, he is able to use those things for his good for his purposes. And I think it's appropriate for us to stop right here and ask ourselves if we believe that to be true today. Of course it's true in the Joseph narrative. Of course it's true in the Genesis world. But is that not true for our lives today? It absolutely is. If you were to make a list of the evil or bad things that have happened to you in your life Looking back on them now, do you not see how God used them for his glory and for your good? We all have stories, examples, and situations that we could share with one another where in the moment, we may not have seen it. And I don't think Joseph himself saw it every time something evil happened to him. But at the end of his life, at the end of the story, as he reflected back on those multiple decades of being treated poorly, his theological assessment of what had happened was that God was working in the evil to bring about his purposes. That's exactly true for us today. And in fact, some 2,000 years After the book of Genesis, that same theological truth can be directly applied to our Lord Jesus Christ. Both Acts 2 and Acts 4 tell us that it was sinful, godless men. Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Gentiles. It was those people groups by their wickedness and by their evil put Christ on the cross which was exactly what God had predetermined, Acts 2, 
which is exactly what God had predestined to happen, Acts 4. So what is true of Joseph in the Genesis world is also true of Jesus in the New Testament world and very much true for us in 2023. It is that God uses evil for his purpose. And notice on either side of Genesis 50-20, and this is what I really want us to hang on to before we move on to the next point. On either side of Genesis 50-20, verses 19 and 21, notice there's no explanation for verse 50. There's no explanation for that tension of how a good and great God can use evil for his ultimate purpose. Of course, He is not evil and is not in the evil himself. He cannot do evil, but God is able to use it for his glory. Again, there's no explanation of that in Genesis 50. It just says that that's what God does. And sometimes I think it's hard for us in the day in which we live to not get an answer because we can just Google for anything these days, right? (laughs) And you can get, for the most part, an answer. It may not be the one you want or You may not even know if it's the right one, but you can get an answer within seconds on on your phone. So it's a little tough, I think, at first glance to look at 50, 20 and to not get an explanation of how that works. But we've we've got to take Joseph's example and apply that to our own lives. Joseph just knows it to be true. He knows it to be true because he is confident in God and he is confident in God's word. And that needs to be true of us today. So not only does Joseph have the correct theology, he's seeing this correctly. Now Joseph also has the correct practice or the right practice. It's similar to what we talked about uh, this morning in, in the main service. Loving other believers, you can say it all you want, but we're commanded to do it. And that is true of Joseph. Not only does he have the right theology, he's got the right practice. This is Verse 21. So not only does Joseph believe this profound theological truth, he then goes on to say, verse 21, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph truly believed God to use evil for his glory but then he acted on it in his own life. You see, it's easy for us to come in on Sunday mornings and be taught from the Word of God and to accrue knowledge about Scripture, but we must, the rest of the week, apply what we learn. That's exactly what Joseph is doing here. Now notice verse 21, the word provide. He's going to sustain and supply his family. Joseph's treatment of his brothers, his practice, it aligned with what he knew to be true about God and may that be true about us. Well, so we've worked through the first two scenes in Genesis 50. Let's end our time this morning by looking at the third and final scene of Genesis 50 in the book of Genesis in general. And that would be the death and burial of Joseph. The death and burial of Joseph. Verse 22, now Joseph stayed in Egypt, 
he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also, the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and shall, you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. So you can see from verses 22 and 26, bookends to this final section, that Joseph was 110 years old when he died. According to Egyptian culture, this would have been a life well lived. And even according to the book of Job, this was a life well lived for Joseph. As was made clear throughout this chapter, it was never Joseph's intent to stay in the promised land after the funeral procession for Israel. He had always intended on coming back to Egypt, and not just himself, but to bring his whole household. That's exactly what happens here. He and his brothers and their households all come back to Egypt. We're told here that Joseph lived long enough to see his great-grandchildren, which would have been a very, uh, a, a, very, a time of very much blessing for Joseph, being able to see his kids and his kids' kids. Notice here, verse 24, there's an interesting expression referring in verse 24 to were born on Joseph's knees. Remember back in 48 when Jacob had adopted Joseph's sons? This is essentially what happened here, that Joseph himself was adopting his descendants, bringing him into his family, officially speaking. We saw that in chapter 48, verse 12. And then as a parallel to Israel's burial request at the end of 49, Joseph himself makes a burial request to his brothers here at the end of 50. Look at verse 25. Joseph made his brothers swear to take his remains up to Canaan, to the promised land. So although Joseph was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt, we see that. That's verse 26. That is clear. Joseph's remains would eventually leave Egypt and find their way to Canaan. How do we know this? Joshua 24, verse 32, describes that that is exactly what happened so although Joseph's bones remained in Egypt for some time, later on in biblical history, Joshua chapter 24 tells us that his bones were taken from Egypt to the promised land. But although the Joseph story has come to an end, his deathbed scene is over, 
His final words are absolutely critical for us to see as we conclude our study of Genesis. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but notice what he says here. But God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Abrahamic covenant is still intact. From its inauguration in Genesis 12 up until the end of Genesis 50, Joseph here is affirming that the plan of God is still moving forward. It will be God who will take them up out of the land of Egypt and will take them to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's people can rest assured knowing that God will continue to work out his good and perfect plan and that it will come to pass at an appropriate time. Notice verse 24 and verse 25 both begin with that unique phrase, God will surely take care of you. So the Genesis narrative ends with Joseph dying at the age of 110. I think it's interesting that one of Joseph's descendants, a man by the name of Joshua, who led the nation of Israel into the promised land, also died at the age of 110. Joshua 24, 29. It was Joseph who essentially brought the nation to Egypt and it was Joshua who would ultimately complete the exodus from Egypt to the promised land. Now that wraps up our study of Genesis. All 50 chapters. Seems like we just started on one hand. But it's interesting here in chapter 50, and this is where we'll end today, that Genesis chapter 50 anticipates the events of Exodus. And I know Carrie's mentioned this to you before, but we're going to take a break from the Old Testament this summer, go to 1 Thessalonians. But then in September, we're going to pick up with the story in the book of Exodus. But chapter 50 anticipates Exodus. So as we close Genesis... I want us to get in our mind that Exodus is coming. So Genesis anticipates the events of Exodus in several ways. Let me just give you three quickly. The first one is the term go up. Did you notice that when we were reading through chapter 50? Almost half a dozen times there's a reference to going up to the promised land. I've noted them for your noted them for you on your handout. The nation of Israel will ultimately go up <laughs> to the promised land. The second way chapter 50 anticipates the events of Exodus is Jacob's funeral procession pictures the Exodus. In fact, there are a lot of scholars, and we can't be sure on this, so no need to send me an angry email after class. 
But there are several scholars that believe that Jacob's funeral procession pictures the exodus, that some of the route that was taken for the funeral was taken for the exodus. Again, difficult to ascertain that, but possible. But in general, I think we can all affirm the fact that they are leaving Egypt and they are going to the promised land for Jacob does anticipate exactly what will happen in Exodus. And the final way Genesis 50 anticipates Exodus is the Abrahamic covenant promised the land of Canaan. And I love love this. If you look at the last word of Genesis, verse 26, the last word is Egypt. (laughs) That's not what the Abrahamic covenant said where the land or where the people would be. They were promised to be in the land of Canaan. So the question at the end of Genesis isn't, will God take them out of the land or out of Egypt into the promised land? The question is, how will he do it? Turn over one page to Exodus. How will God get the people, his people, out of Egypt and to the promised land? Chapter one, verse eight, here's how he will do it. Now there arose a new king. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's how he's gonna do it. (laughs) He's gonna Genesis 50, 20, all throughout Exodus, gonna use the evilness of Pharaoh to bring about his good plan and bring the people into the land. So make sure you're here. We'll be here all summer. But then definitely be here in September when we start Exodus. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for our study of Genesis. We're forever indebted to the fact that you have given us that story. And I pray, God, that you will continue to use it in our own lives to captivate and capture our hearts to see life as you see it, that you are the creator of all things and that you have brought a way of redemption through Jesus Christ. Help us see life for what it is through that lens and through your perspective. God, we're grateful for our time to be able to gather and open your word. May our time of study and our time of worship and our time of fellowship be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.